Hello, Scholar Podcast listeners. My name is Alessia Dabgaluk, and as your host this week, I am bringing you the eastmost episode recorded so far on this show. For the next half an hour, we will be looking at Eurasia not from Beijing, Moscow, Delhi, or other continental capitals, but from Tokyo, and with a rather special guest, Professor Tomohiko Taniguchi, a speechwriter and special advisor to Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. I've taken Professor Taniguchi's class at Keio University in Tokyo, Japan, where he serves as a tenured professor and where I am based until January. Throughout his professional career, Professor Taniguchi has changed his location multiple times, working as a researcher and journalist in several reputable institutions worldwide, including Brookings Institute, Foreign Press Association, Princeton University, and Shanghai Institute of International Studies, to name just a few. In 2005, Professor Taniguchi joined Japan's Minister of Foreign Affairs and started writing speeches for then-Foreign Minister Taro Aso and subsequently Shinzo Abe. How difficult is it to write a speech for the highest political figure in a country? How does Japanese government view developments in the Asian region and where does it see its own place? What is needed to encourage more Japanese companies to take part in the maritime and on-land connectivity projects in Eurasia? I will leave these rather complex questions for our guests to answer and hope that you will enjoy this rather curious conversation about the mysterious island nation on the eastern edge of the Asia-Pacific. See you in the next episode! Right, so Professor Taniguchi, thank you very much for agreeing to appear on the podcast. And um, I'll just jump straight to the first question that I have. Your biographies say that you spent a respectable number of years uh, in close proximity to the Japanese government, working first as the Deputy Director General for Public Diplomacy at Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and then as a speechwriter and advisor for then Foreign Minister Taro Aso and the current Minister Shinzo Abe. But before you uh, went on to be close to the Japanese government, you worked quite a few years in journalism. So I was wondering why and how did you come to the decision to work with the government? It was actually really, really something out of the blue when mm-hmm. I got a call from Tokyo. At the time, I was spending my sabbatical year in a U.S. think tank called Brookings Institution. I was in a small apartment house in Washington, D.C., and the phone rang. And when I took it, it came from Tokyo, and the caller said that it was from the Vice Minister for Foreign Affairs. Vice Minister for Foreign Affairs was someone uh, in the top administrative position at the Foreign Ministry. And he wondered if I would be interested in shifting my career and start working as Deputy uh, Director General for Public Diplomacy and Deputy Press Secretary for non-Japanese-speaking members of the press. A, because I was about to be at a critical juncture in my professional career when I would have to choose either I could stay working as a writer or I would have to change my career from a writing position 
to a managerial. And B, because I had spent a lot of time and effort in making my opinions be heard by others in international fora, symposia, and other opportunities. For instance, I was for some time a regular at Davos World Economic Forum Annual Gathering. Whenever I was there, I found a lot of Japanese members. But those Japanese members mingled only among themselves and not so much associated with uh, others. And I was the one who stood and sat on the front row and each and every time raised a hand earlier than anyone else to be named by the chairman as if I was just representing my own nation. No one actually asked me to do such a thing, but I found myself doing those things whenever I took part in international symposia. So when I received the phone from Tokyo and from uh, Vice Minister for Foreign Affairs, I felt rewarding, to be honest, because someone uh, was watching me doing such a thing. These two elements combined led me to join the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, despite the fact that until that point in my life, a thought never, never had occurred to me that I would one day be working for the Japanese government. But it was a, a fun sort of thing in a different way. No longer I was able to be investigative. No longer mm -hmm. I was able to exercise my freedom of opinion. I had to give it up considerably. Still, still, it was rewarding because I was just able to give stronger voice to Japanese diplomacy by writing foreign policy speeches. And I was, in a way, very much tired of Japan continuing to be a puncher way below mm. its weight. So um, that's a long story made short. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So you started writing speeches right away. That was immediately part of your yes. job. Yes. Uh -huh. Interesting. So um, on this element, a little bit more specifically about writing speeches, how long does it usually take you to write a speech? And I'm curious about the most difficult speech that you had to write so far. How and why was it difficult? It varies. That's a short answer. But um, it's similar to write lyrics for a singer. Mm -hmm. uh, the lyrics could be beautiful. And when you finish writing lyrics, you think it's perfect, but it's far from complete because the lyrics wait to be sung. Mm -hmm. by the singer. The speech is the same. You say, I've done this and I've uh, finished writing, and it's a beautiful draft, but that draft is still work in progress. It needs to be uh, delivered by your client. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, the speech is not about the client's personal view, it's about the government's policies. And naturally, they involve many stakeholders. And unless and until 
a great many number of those stakeholders say, we're happy with this speech, the speech would end up ineffective because somehow it could, it could even alienate those government officials who would otherwise have to be more firmly involved. So that's a unique difficulty in writing a speech for policy's sake. I have heard, though um, I have not verified it yet, that when it comes to the State of the Union speech annually delivered by the U.S. President, it takes about uh, 20 revisions. To be a speechwriter is tantamount to being able to spend a huge number of sleepless nights. You have to be able to stay awake uh, longer mm -hmm. than average. So in the case of uh, myself, uh, on average, the final draft that I submit for the Japanese Prime Minister tends to be 12th and 13th version. The longest one was one that Shinzo Abe delivered to the Joint House of the U.S. Congress mm -hmm. in April 2015 that had to undergo 19 revisions. Wow. And you are basically dealing with the busiest possible individual of your country whose time schedule is very much tight. When you are going to rewrite the draft, it usually means that you have to finish rewriting until the next morning. Mm -hmm. When you say, therefore, the final version was its 19th uh, version, it um, basically means that the writer frankly speaking, me, I, had had to spend 17, 18 sleepless nights. Welcome to speech writing profession. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything specific about that speech that it took so much revision or...? Because Shinzo Abe was so much keen on making a very, very good one, a historical one. Mm -hmm. uh, so he actually gave me many instructions and each one of which had to be dealt with very seriously. That's the biggest reason why. And just, just a small clarification at this point. So you're writing speeches only in English, or it's both in English? Both in English and in Japanese. Mm -hmm. When uh, the leader, in the case of uh, myself, the Japanese Prime Minister, wants to deliver it in English in the first place, mm -hmm. and if it is short, I write from the beginning only in English, and then reverse translate the English content into Japanese. Mm -hmm. But usually I write in Japanese, and until it's finalized, and until it's, it gets endorsed by the speaker, uh, Prime Minister, it's all in, in Japanese. So I have to make it into English in a very short space of time, and I can't do this. So I ask uh, one of our trusted translators to do the job overnight. <laughs> and that's she, not he. She is a work uh, horse. <laughs> and she, she could spend as many <laughs> sleepless nights as I could. So she and I uh, basically work together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, also as part of your job, 
you travel quite a lot accompanying Prime Minister mm. uh, in his foreign trips. And I was thinking about the um, perception of Japan that you might have come across mm. uh, among maybe foreign leaders or just general public. Mm. I was wondering what was the most peculiar or unusual perception of Japan you've come, that you've come across in your foreign trips? Well, Japan represented for many years, for many people, simply Mount Fuji, Geisha, mm -hmm. and little else. And that uh, notion is changing very rapidly with the influx of tourists from abroad. The floodgate was opened under the current administration of Shinzo Abe's for foreign tourists by liberalizing the visa arrangements more in a draconian way to the people from China, Vietnam, Thailand, the Philippines, and so on and so forth. So people have come to see Japan through their own eyes, and if you have more such people from abroad, the less amount of stereotypical perceptions you would have from those people. That's one thing. But your question was about Japanese perception observed by uh, foreigners, particularly about Japanese government and Japanese policies. Mm. Um, I must say the Prime Minister we're talking about started off his second term with much negativities that he gained from abroad. I recall that uh, he was dubbed by not a small amount of uh, media outlets from abroad as a warmongering prime minister, someone interested in bringing Japanese clock backward to where it was in the 1930s, or ultra-nationalist. Those kinds of negative adjectives were attached more often than not to the Prime Minister Abe. Fast forward to 2019, Scott Morrison, Australian Prime Minister, has said about Shinzo Abe twice, three times, or even more as someone he counts on as a source of advice and as one of the elder statesmen in the Indo-Pacific community. In Brussels, September 2019, the outgoing president of the European Union, President Juncker, specifically invited Prime Minister Abe to inaugurate the annual seminar about Europe-Asia connectivity and President Juncker featured Shinzo Abe as an inaugural speaker. And the speech that he gave at the time highlighted the roles to be played both by Europe and Japan by calling these two entities two pillars that should sustain the rule of law, democracy, and so on uh, across the Euro-Asian continent. So I think uh, Shinzo Abe and the Japanese government, for that matter, have come quite a long way from where it was 2012-13 to where it now is. Mm -hmm. right. Since we've um, touched on the foreign policy and mm -hmm. shifted a little bit to the foreign policy, uh, my next question is, 
to do more with the uh, Japan's foreign relations. Mm -hmm. And in one of the interviews that you gave previously, you compared governance choices of foreign policies to those of shop owners, uh, saying that the location is one of the uh, most important variables in choosing mm -hmm. their partners and allies, uh, which reminded me quite a bit of the um, uh, like centuries-old arguments like that of Aristotle about the, how geopolitical and geographical rather environment uh, shapes mentality of the people. And recently there has been a rise in discussions about a different phenomenon, which was uh, labeled pan-Asianism by some academics who are self-reflecting on the shared identity, uh, if you will, of the Asian people who could leave their diversities behind. What is your opinion on this? Pan-Asianism is both new and old. Pan-Asianism, a la Japan's Virgin, was in wide circulation in the 1930s and 1940s, the culmination of which led Japan to advocate that there must be something called Great East Asian Core Prosperity Sphere. The idea, of course, was that the sphere had to be the one under the guidance and leadership provided solely by Japan. So that was a Japan-led hierarchical system. Pan-Asianism uh, you're talking about today, would that be a system under which all nations are created equal and all nations are on egalitarian foundations? The ideal being such, the reality would be very much different. The reality should reflect the real power dynamics that one sees in this part of the world. So chances are uh, you could see great rivalries in that pan-Asianism being played out either between Japan and China or among China, India, Japan, mm -hmm. given those three nations at the moment remain three most important and powerful nations in the Asia that uh, is being talked about. Mm -hmm. One must be very much careful before defining what pan-Asianism is. It could be defined in many different ways. The direction that the Japanese government is headed for at the moment is not to bind Japan very closely with the continental powers. Rather, it's focused more on the maritime domain. And it's probably based on the very old notion of Japan being an island nation and reflecting perhaps the equally long-held anxiety that without the safe passage of sea-based trade, the Japanese economy should be in difficulty. Japan, if you look at what's being done over the past 10 plus years, has found such countries as Australia, India, as among very close partners, if not allies. By so doing, I think Tokyo has been able to widen, broaden its strategic space in the maritime domain. Now is the time in the Japanese history for Japan to revisit its root identity that it is an island trading nation and it is a maritime democratic 
nation. Since you've just mentioned India as among the core partners for Japan nowadays, yeah. alongside with Australia, what role do you see India playing in the regional con connectivity? Regional connectivity. Um, India is one of its kind. No nation is like India. It's a um, huge nation in terms of population, young nation in terms of the age distribution, but it's also semi-peninsula, semi-continent, semi-maritime nation. By historical legacy, perhaps, India has its unique sense that the peace and security of the Indian Ocean must be provided by the greatest country in the Indian Ocean region, that is to say, India. So India's got a peculiar sense of responsibility over the Indian Ocean. And there, the interests of India, Japan, and perhaps Australia as well, and I must say of the UKs and France, meet together. Basically, when uh, one thinks about connectivity involving India, we're not necessarily talking about overland connectivity. We're talking basically about maritime-based connectivity. The Indian Ocean is going to be the highway, industrial highway, for the 21st century. If so, the safety therein, peace therein, must be concerns for many. And the Japanese and Indians, and increasingly the Australians as well, are thinking about that the rule of law should be the name of game in the Indian Ocean, and they are the ones that must be willing to provide the rule of law in the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. And about the elephant in the room, which is China, mm -hmm. I guess, uh, just also big nation, big nation state in Asia, uh, who is also interested in the maritime mm -hmm. connectivity, not just land connectivity, if you will, because maritime Silk Road, for instance, is a key part of the China's grand connectivity strategy right. in the Eurasian continent. And recently, uh, Chinese investments have exceeded 100 billion US dollars mm -hmm. uh, in all the projects that it is un undertaken in the region. Uh, what role do you see these investments playing? not just for the Eurasian continent, but for also for the Indo-Pacific area from, from China. Do you see any economic benefits from these activities? There are, there are benefits um, you could benefit from, from their attempts of uh, building roads and ports, dams, and so, so forth, so long as those projects can be pursued in a profitable way and in a sustainable way. And in a transparent way, there must be room for Europeans, Japanese, Americans to take part in. Pick up an example such as building a great port in Sri Lanka. Number one, is it bankable? Number two, the Sri Lankan government could pay back the loans? Number three, um, how much human capital should be developed locally? You know, those are the questions that must be posed. If the answers to those questions are yes, 
why not urging Japanese companies to be part of that endeavor? Because after all, the Japanese companies must be interested in making profits. But when there is political risk and when there is financial risk, such that uh, local governments would find it very much difficult to pay back loans, then many of those Japanese companies will find it harder to get involved in. So, seen from the opposite angle, if there is any role to be played by the Japanese companies, uh, it would be that by getting involved in those endeavors, chances are you could make those projects more bankable, more transparent, and more sustainable, and more friendly towards the human capital you could find locally. But as far as I've heard and as far as I think has been discussed as well, Japanese companies are getting involved in the projects, aren't they? Japan, although to a more limited extent, uh, is also investing in the continental infrastructure projects, notably through the JICA agency, isn't it? The track record of the Japanese companies is less than um, obvious, less than uh, apparent, less than, let's say, uh, visible. Uh, they could have done much more, but I must say they have been very much cautious before getting involved in those projects. Mm -hmm. um, so one must encourage even more those Japanese companies to take more risks and to be able to look uh, more outwardly seeking profit-making opportunities. What is needed to increase their interest and confidence? Uh, that's a very good and difficult question to answer because the same situation applies more to the domestic situation. The One of the biggest obstacles for Japanese economy is that the big, big amount of cash and deposit untapped and unused remaining in the corporate ledgers. Mm -hmm. Why do they not use such a huge reservoir of cash for better purposes? And I, th I think that's a puzzling question remaining its answer. For the past uh, seven, eight years, the Japanese corporate tax has been lowered dramatically, and um, Japanese trade situation has turned to the better because you now have lowered value of Japanese currency for exporters, and corporate governance code has been stricter in order for the Japanese corporates to spend their cash more wisely. And then there is a huge amount of cash and deposit still remaining unused that indicates that Japanese corporates still remain very cautious. If that's the case about their domestic conduct, uh, needless to say, they are way too cautious when it comes to their international projects. Mm -hmm. All right. To zoom a little bit out of the Asia, maybe, and looking a bit more at the global economy, many countries are talking about the current situation around the U.S. dollar, and it has actually been 
uh, topic of our discussion in the class for mm-hmm. for the past uh, few sessions too. There are many phenomena happening at the moment, including the um, Chinese government active uh, pursuit of what quote unquote crypto yuan. We see fragmentation of markets along regional lines, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, and uh, many occurrences, if you will, in the global trade arena are putting question marks about the efficiency of mechanisms and institutions like WTO. Do you think that current financial institutions and dollar-led currency regime are fit for the changing global market landscape? And what is Japan's stance on this? Um, Japan is not a hegemonic presence in this argument that could provide the international economy with um, common good, such as U.S. dollar. The question to be asked all the time is, okay, you may not be content in what's available under the current situation. What else could you have? You might be interested in building an alternative financial arrangement, but the question is how? This is the greatest inertia phenomenon that the international community is still uh, having to live with. You might be interested in turning the situation to your own design, but how can you do that? The Japanese government's position is of no position whatsoever. Uh, It is that uh, the Japanese corporates, Japanese economic entities, as is the case with many other countries, uh, entities and corporates, uh, ought to live with the current arrangement, so that under that current arrangement they could maximize their profit-making opportunities. Now, when it comes to multilateral frameworks, uh, the story is a little bit different. Multilateral institutions are the ones that have been long time in the making, and that they still need um, supporters. If you lose supporters, for multilateral institutions, what would be the alternative? Is it going to be jungle's law? I don't think anyone expects that to be a scenario for the future. So Japan's role is to invest more, not less, into institutions such as WTO, hoping that uh, there would be time again sooner rather than later for the international community to uh, give um, trust once again to those multilateral institutions. And for that matter, the big, big players such as China and India are also those countries that uh, shoulder the responsibility to enrich those multilateral institutions. The United Nations is uh, an obvious example. Hmm. Well, let's hope that uh, it is indeed feasible after the uh, WTO appellate body suspension, which is probably, it's, it's about to happen in a day mm-hmm. or two, I think. Right, um, my last question is more reflective and philosophical, rather. Japan, for many people on the continent, on the Eurasian continent, uh, for countries like Russia, even China, for many people, it remains a mystery. So since the podcast uh, that 
we're on right now is targeting the young population in countries uh, of Eurasia. Um, what advice would you give to them? They're now those people who are now young people who are now watching developments in the Eurasian continent. Alessia, you said uh, Japan remains a little bit of mystery. Is it a bad thing or not? <laughs> the, it may be perhaps a good thing because um, that's got magnetic power of a sort, attracting more people from abroad. Once on the soil of Japan, you'll find um, the country is different in many ways, but there may be similarities. And overall, so far, a lot of people come to Japan and return back there to their home countries with more or less positive sense about the country. And the country must remain such um, that uh, the, in this country the experiences for visitors from abroad should remain more or less positive. After all, what differentiates Japan from many others is what I call continuity and longevity. Uh, the same language is being spoken for about, I don't know, 1600 years or so, and poems that were created in the 7th century are still to be found in high school te textbooks. And uh, my view is that uh, Japan should not lose their traits, uh, and yet it should celebrate it becoming more diversified. And the trend is now set, it's an irreversible. Friend, I would argue. Right, so bottom line, Japan is opening up enough to be more welcoming to the foreigners, but it still preserves the continuity of its tradition to charm uh, anyone coming with its history and culture. So well, it is not necessarily to charm people from a book. Well, it's, it's a side effect, mm -hmm. but it's about um, uh, self-esteem mm -hmm. and it's about uh, self-identity. Uh, the, the core of the self-identity of the Japanese is that uh, uh, people have lived in this country for many centuries and there's something common, common and inherited generation by generation. Mm -hmm. And that Japanese-ness, if you like, is being transformed into something more diversified, that's for sure. So people from many different backgrounds are now citing those poems sang in the 7th and 8th century. Uh, that way, the Japanese-ness itself is being uh, in a transition period. All right, I was just trying to lure our listeners to come <laughs> and yes. visit Japan uh, and yes. see for themselves. Right, on this note, uh, I would like to thank you, Professor Taniguchi, again for being on the interview. Thank you very much, Alessia, for having me. Right. Mm -hmm.